Many of you are here for here at IMS for the first time, and some of you are here doing a retreat for the first time. And sometimes when we undertake a new activity like this, it can seem a little foreign, a little strange, a little, you know, in the first day or two, what is going on here? And I remember a time in my own practice when I had such a feeling, and I want to share it with you because it's instructive and it might be helpful as you negotiate these first few days. I'd been practicing here at IMS for about 10 years, and I decided that I really wanted to really see what this practice could do. And I just really wanted to practice for as long as I wanted to practice without any interruption. So for a variety of reasons, I made the decision to go to Asia. And I went to Burma. I was born and raised in New England, and I really hadn't left New England much at all in my life. And when I got to Rangoon, it was a strange place. It was a different climate and different language, and people looked different. It was different food. It was, And within that very foreign culture, I went to a monastery, which was even more uh, out of my league, if you will. Strange. So just the routine and the ritual and the the uniforms of the monks and nuns was was all a little bit uh, unsettling. And I felt quite alone, and I, I can't say I felt alienated, but I felt alone and I felt a little strange. Even though I was excited and I wanted to be there, I was apprehensive, and I had a kind of... Um, maybe I was a little homesick, too, I'm not sure. But there's one memory I have that sticks out in my mind as being the time I lost those feelings of being separate and as if a stranger in a strange place. At this meditation center, like here, there was a sitting before breakfast. And this sitting, the foreigners would go and sit in the foreigners' meditation hall. And at the end of the sitting, we would come out and we would kind of stand in the stand around our teacher's cottage, our, our teacher's Upandita Saira, and we'd stand around his cottage and we'd, we would wait for the signal, which is a gong, uh, a wooden gong, uh, up the hill uh, from the dining room when they would tell us that uh, breakfast was ready to be served and then we could line up and, and go to breakfast. And in the early dawn light, it's just becoming light, the nuns and the women uh, and all the people that are meditating at this center used to chant right at the end of their sitting before breakfast. And they would chant the refuges, the precepts, and a little bit of metta. So up near the dining room there was this one women's meditation hall and it could hold twelve to fifteen hundred people. And so they'd, you know, at, at 525 they would start chanting. And Burmese women, when they're in intensive retreat, are very devout, and they're very strong, and they're very full of faith and energy. And so you, you get 
you know, 900 or 1,000 or 1,200 women chanting the refuges and precepts like it's their reason to live. And they're into their chant, you know, 30 seconds or a minute, and there's another meditation hall of women halfway up the hill, and it's a double-decker, and there's 500 women on each floor, so one floor would start, and they're 30 seconds behind the first, and they're chanting with the same vigor and faith, and the second floor starts, and so you get a couple thousand women, and then there's a meditation hall of men and monks that is just down the hill a little bit from them, but up the hill from us, and that holds somewhere between 800 and 1,200, and they'd start chanting, and there's another meditation hall down behind there was another 2,000 monks, and they do their thing. So you've got, you know, two, three, four thousand people expressing their faith and their determination and their commitment to this path, this practice, and this realization that they are aspiring to awaken. And I tell you, it'll make the hair stand up on you. It is so moving. It is so soulful, if you will, if there is such a thing in a Buddhist country. But it's really it's so moving that I realized that what I was there to do, to practice, to awaken, to realize what I could of the potential within this mind, was what they were doing. And when I, when I kind of got it and kind of grokked it, I realized that they're no different than I am. Whether they're men or women or Burmese or Western or monks or nuns, what they're doing and what I was doing was the same thing. And so all the sense of being separate or alienated or different just fell away. And I realized how uh, universal and how available the Dharma is for everyone. And how the practice of awakening for each one of us, for each one of them, for everyone who's heard the teaching since the time of the Buddha over these past 2,500 years, has had to experience in their first day of practice what you experience today. No different. Whether they live now, or whether it's your person sitting beside you, or whether they live in Burma in practice, or whether they lived 2,500 years ago in practice. What you have discovered today about your mind and your body is what they too had to discover. No different. And when I realized that, it just, I felt at home even though I was in such a strange and foreign place. So here, on this retreat, last night we opened the retreat formally with the formal taking of the refuges and the precepts. And each day, we too, at the sitting before breakfast, will recommit our intention, our energy, our aspiration to and take the refuges and precepts. How can we make that chanting a meaningful and valuable practice to support our awakening? 
rather than just let it be some mumbo jumbo, you know, that ritual it has no meaning at all. Can we make it so that that first five minutes or whatever it takes of, of that early morning sitting just reminds us, wakens us to what we're doing here and inspires our energy and reawakens our aspiration and our commitment and lays the foundation for the rest of our practice throughout the day. Tonight I want to speak about how to make the taking of the refuges such a practice, a valuable piece of your day. We take refuge in the Buddha first. The Buddha was a human being. Lived 2,500 years ago. Lived a regal existence. He was a prince. But lived in the, in the palace and you know, got married and had a child and did, learned what he had to learn uh, to be a prince. Much like we have to learn what we have to learn to be, you know, who we are, doing what we're doing, and getting a job and doing our social thing and supporting ourselves. And somewhere in that, he. something got stirred up in him. And he went to look for the answer to. Human suffering. Why is it that humans suffer? Why is it that we are frustrated and disappointed and stressful and anxious and fearful and fretful and jealous and envious? And why, why is it? Why, why do we have to suffer with these experiences, which we all do? And after some years of searching and, and practicing the teachings that were offered in his day and striking out on his own, he he came to some understanding, he came to some realization, very deep and profoundly liberating realization. And he understood the cause of suffering. And he was freed of it. Now sometimes when we hear that story, and and probably many of you know the story of the Buddha much more, it's much more embellished than that, but that's the basic outline. When we think of this human being looking at the conditions of his life, like you've looked at the conditions of your life today, in your mind, and realize that here was someone who was able to figure it out, so to speak, was able to disentangle his mind. I used to be amazed in the first few years of my practice that anybody could look at this mind and figure out anything. It was such a chaotic, uh, rambling, you know, incessant, obsessive, you know, not a pretty picture. And I, and I just thought, this is amazing. Somebody could look at this, somebody could spend time with this and kind of lay it out and say, you know, here, this is the cause of that, and this is the cause of that, and you let go of this, and you develop a little of that, and whew, free. 
Wow, how do, how do you do that? But what does it mean to be awake, really? To be a Buddha means to be awake. It means to see things as they really are. To really see deeply. This is how it is in this moment, in every moment. The qualities of an awakened mind are not beyond our reach. Qualities of the awakened mind are, are expressed in what are called the ten paramis, the ten forces of purification, the ten perfections of mind. Generosity, effort, renunciation, living in harmony, determination, truthfulness, balance, loving-kindness. We know what those are. We all have those experiences. Loving-kindness, truthfulness, determination, energy. What is so esoteric or so Buddhist or so religious or so spiritual about that? These are very human qualities that we all have. But what makes a Buddha a Buddha, or what makes the mind awakened, is when these qualities become the default setting of your mind. Meaning, they automatically arise as the response to every situation. So instead of being frustrated and disappointed by things not going the way you want, oh, you feel patient and understanding and determined and energetic. Or whenever you see an opportunity to be, you know, kind of hoard your, hoard your goods or acquire more for yourself, the response is to be generous. But whenever you see any form of need in the world, the response is to be generous, to share what you have. Well, when that's the, uh, the, that's the high bar of being awake, then we realize, oh, the work for us in awakening is to develop these qualities so that they are more responsive, they're more ever-present, they're more accessible to us in our life, in whatever it is we do, our personal, our interpersonal, our social, our political, our economic life, our family life, to be more patient, to be more loving, to be more generous, to be more understanding, to be more balanced, to be more truthful. That's the path. That's what the Bodhisattva did, the Prince did, in order to become awakened. And when these qualities were brought to perfection, so that they were the qualities of mind that arose in every situation, that's being awake. That's extraordinary. I'm sure you have noticed uh, room for improvement within your own mind today. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the fact that there was this human being but the human being has died and gone and nobody's ever going to see him in the flesh again. That's over. But we know there was a human being who showed us the way, showed us that it's possible and what it means to be awake. Thank you. I take refuge in someone who can show me that it is possible. 
And this is what the Buddha has done. Shown us that it is possible to be free of suffering. When we take refuge in the Buddha, not only are we taking refuge in this very specific human being and what he has accomplished and what he has shown us, but we're taking refuge in the potential within our own heart or mind, heart and mind, we will use those words synonymously. We take refuge in the potential within our own heart to become a Buddha, to be awakened. What that means is that when you're practicing and you, 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 you ask your attention or you tell your attention to pay attention and it promptly goes off on its own agenda and leaves you wandering in the past or the future or something, Rather than being frustrated and judgmental and hating yourself and criticizing yourself, we take refuge in our potential to awaken. Okay, well, let's try again. Because we have that potential in every moment. It's not like we lose it. If your mind wanders once, you've lost your opportunity. It doesn't, it's like you missed it that time, but there's another moment right now, and you've got the potential to be awake in this moment and the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. And it's that taking refuge in that potential that makes repetition possible in practice. Because practice requires a tremendous love of the spirit of repetition. Because you've got the instruction. That's it. Watch your breath and anything else that takes your attention away. That's the practice for the rest of your life. Okay, enjoy, enjoy the repetition. That, that's really what it is. And so it's over and over and over again. We just bring the mind, we bring our attention back, and every time we land in the present moment and we connect with the breath, we're awake. That's all you can do in that moment, is be awake. You can't be super awake or more awake you're just awake. And that's all that's required, is to be awake. So we take refuge in the human being who showed us the possibility and what it means to be free. We take refuge in the potential in our own heart, our own mind, our own experience each moment to be awake. And we take refuge in the possibility that the momentum of those wakeful moments can reach a certain crescendo where we don't fall back. You know, to become awakened. To become awakened. To, to, to live in an awakened state, if you will, moment to moment. It is possible. You will see as the course of the retreat unfolds, that today is difficult. Tomorrow will also be difficult. Wednesday, or the, uh, the third day, will be maybe the most difficult. So the, the first day are the hardest days. Okay? But don't worry. Momentum builds up. And you'll see by the end of the retreat that you're actually more awake 
than at the beginning of the retreat. This is the path of awakening. This is the path of becoming a Buddha. Or this is the path of realizing our inherent potential. It's not yet realized. We have to work to realize it. It takes energy to realize it. It takes effort to realize it. It takes continuity and repetition and, you know, determination to realize our possibility of being awake. But that's the path. And so when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's reminding ourselves, no matter how many times the mind has wandered, no matter how long we have wallowed in self-pity and anger and judgment and criticism, the past and fantasies and futures, and lost to the breath, lost to IMS, just completely elsewhere, no matter how often or how long, in an instant, we can wake up. The instant we're back, all that is gone, and we're awake. So even if you're wallowing in thought, lost, you can still take refuge in the Buddha. Eventually, I'm going to come back. And in that moment, you're awake. That's a tremendous gift. That's a tremendous potential that we all have. It's just to recognize it. There's nothing you have to do except just recognize in each moment that you're there. What could be easier? Well, even though it's easy to understand, it's extraordinarily difficult to do. Unbelievably difficult. I'm sure you all know and would agree. It is. It's, is there anybody that doesn't understand what it is that we're doing? Or doesn't understand the instruction? We understand. But it's really difficult to do. And so it takes practice. The Buddha is one who has practiced to perfection. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the possibility of our own perfection. We take refuge in the Dharma. Second. Now the Dharma, I use the word Dharma, which is the Pali word, and the Sanskrit word is Dharma. But they mean the same thing, Dharma or Dhamma. There's three meanings to the word Dhamma that I want to speak about, because when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in, in, in the Dhamma in these three ways. The first is the way things are. It's the capital T, if you will, truth. It's the lawful unfolding of the causes and conditions that makes things happen the way they are. And I'll speak more about that. The second meaning of the word Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha are called the Dharma. The Buddha didn't teach Buddhism, he taught the Dharma. He taught the way things are and the practice to realize it. And the third meaning of the word Dharma is Dharma refers to every moment's experience. Whatever you experience in this moment, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, is a Dhamma. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in the Dhamma in these three ways. The first way I said it refers to the way things are. 
the lawful unfolding of the causes and conditions that produces this experience for you in this moment. Let me give you an analogy. You know, if you take um, an orange seed and you plant it in the ground, it will sprout with care and attention, and a little plant will grow, and in time it will produce an orange tree, which itself will produce oranges. We know that to be true. Maybe none of us have ever done that. But we know that to be true. It has been observed by enough human beings over enough time for us to believe confidently that this is true, that there are laws governing the nature of seeds which are just, that's the way it is. We don't make it happen that way, and we can't stop it from happening that way, but we can observe it happening that way. There's also laws governing the unfolding of seasons. I know you think you're in winter and it's going to be winter forever, but spring is coming later. And there is a natural cycle to the seasons, from, from winter to mud season to spring to summer to fall. to. And it goes that way. It has been observed to happen time and time again. We don't make it happen. No one is making it happen, and no one can make it stop. Well, there are some weather changes that maybe we're making change, but nevertheless, we don't know how to control that, or why it's happening. There are also laws governing the unfolding of the mind. What you are experiencing in this moment, or any moment today, is not accidental. It's not just happenstance. It's not not supposed to happen. It is happening due to lawful, the lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. Most of us do not understand that. We don't understand why it is that we're experiencing what we're experiencing now. It's just it's just beyond our understanding. We haven't looked, but there are those who have observed the unfolding of the mind within themselves and within many other beings, and they've observed it for years or lifetimes. And they have articulated the laws governing the unfolding of the mind. And when these laws are pointed out to us, that, you know, if you act this way, this is going to be the experience. If you act that way, this is going to be your experience. If you're angry and jealous and envious and you're going to be unhappy. You know, if you do things out of carelessness and, you know, self-aggrandizement, you're not going to be happy. On the other hand, if you do things out of kindness and generosity and understanding and patience, you're more likely to be happy. And there's a lot of details to that, the, the laws governing the unfolding of the mind, but when it is pointed out to us, if we pay close attention, we can begin to see for ourselves that it's true. Okay. When you hear teachings on the Dharma, you hear those laws. You hear how it is. You hear, uh, you, you, you get the way it is pointed out to you. 
the way it is in your mind, the way it is between minds, the way it is in the past, the way it is in the future, how to create happiness, how to create unhappiness within your own heart. And initially it can seem pretty far out or pretty obscure or pretty hypothetical even. But if you pay close attention to your own life and the unfolding of your own heart, you'll begin to verify for yourself that this is true. Well, when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're taking refuge in that possibility or that experience that it may be possible for me to figure out or to discern the laws governing the unfolding of my mind. And when we're able to do that, then we can choose the course of action that leads to happiness and away from unhappiness. Right now, we don't have that capacity fully and we make, you know, we make foolish mistakes and we live, we're unhappy some of the time or all of the time or most of the time or a little bit of the time anyway. And we're not fully aligned with the way things are. We're not living our life fully aligned, fully knowledgeable of the way things are. And we're still struggling. We're still you know, trying to make things be the way we want it to be rather than acknowledging this is the way it really is. And so as much as we struggle and you know, try to make things different, frustrated, we're disappointed, we're depressed, we're anxious, we're fretful, not happy. Taking refuge in the Dharma is recommitting ourselves, re-aspiring or reconnecting with the possibility that the way things are is the way things are. If I pay attention, I can find out. I can learn to live in alignment with the way things are. That's the big D, the big Dharma, the big, the big truth. But the teachings of the Buddha are also called the Dharma. For some of you, you're new to practice, you haven't heard much of the teachings of the Buddha, so you may not be able to confirm it, or you may not yet have had the experience where sometimes you'll just be in such a state or very open and receptive, and you'll hear someone speak about the Dharma, or you'll read something about the Dharma, or you'll get a, a teacher that's really very articulate, and you'll hear some something about the Dharma that just goes, Wow you get it. You just, you just get it. It's like, there are the words to articulate something you have always known but never heard. And you get it. You just, and the teachings of the Buddha are like that. They just, they point to the truth. They point to the way things are. And if you are open to it and you hear it, you see, oh, that's the way it is with me, with each other, with... That's just the way it is. But not all of the teachings of the Buddha are so accessible or so available to us. We just, we just don't have the openness, we just don't have the understanding, we don't have the, uh, the breadth or depth or capacity or whatever, the insight. And so sometimes we hear teachings of the Buddha and we say, huh? Really? I don't know about that. That's that sounds pretty... Uh, and so, we're left with this quandary. Do we believe, because the Buddha said it, 
or do we reject it because we don't understand it, or we don't believe it, or we can't confirm it? Taking refuge in the Dharma offers us another option, the middle path between believing in faith or rejecting out of lack of experience. And it's to take what we hear of the teachings of the Buddha and hold them lightly, not as a belief, not as something we have to believe, but not as something we reject because we haven't experienced it or can't confirm it, but rather it's maybe. Let me see. Let me, let me listen. Let me try to understand. Let me apply it in my life. And if it proves to be beneficial or useful or lead to harmony within or without, then let me accept it and live it. And so when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're really taking refuge in the possibility that what we don't yet understand in the teachings of the Buddha, that we won't reject them, but we'll kind of hold them lightly as a possibility in our own life that might prove useful, beneficial, or freeing. We take refuge in the Dharma, we take refuge in the way things are, we take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, not as a dogmatic belief, but as a possibility, a forward-leading articulation of the way it might be, if you look carefully. There's a third meaning to the word Dharma that is important to understand. The Dharma refers to every experience we have. When we feel the breath, that's breath dharma. When we hear a sound, that's hearing dharma. When we feel frustrated, that's frustration dharma. When we feel excited, that's excited dharma. When we feel inspired, that's inspired dharma. Each one of those physical or mental or emotional experience, experiences is called a dharma. In part because that's the way it is in that moment for you. That's the truth of that moment for you. It can't be anything but that. When you're experiencing joy, that's it for you. That's the truth of that moment for you. That's the Dhamma. And when we take refuge in the Dhamma in this way, what we're aspiring to do is to find a refuge, to find a place of safety, to find a place that feels like home, find a place where we feel at ease, you know, a real refuge, a place of mm, a sanctuary for our heart and our mind, for ourselves. And when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're aspiring to have that sense of being at home with every experience that we have. To be at ease with, to be at home with, to be intimate with, every experience you had today. Whether it was pleasant or unpleasant. Whether you liked it or not. Whether it was familiar or not. Whether it was gross or subtle. Physical, mental, emotional. To have the understanding or to have the capacity to be at ease with. Every one of them. When we take refuge in the Dhamma, we are aspiring 
to develop that capacity. Probably, for most of you, there was something today that was really unacceptable. It was just not okay to be happening. You know, wandering mind, painful knee, frustration, disappointment, it's not happening like you want it to happen, and... Well, there's some room for improvement there. And when we aspire to the Dhamma, or when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we're reaffirming that, okay, today I didn't find a refuge in pain. Maybe tomorrow. So, tomorrow we'll take refuge in the Dhamma again. And maybe we'll be a little better at, or maybe we'll develop greater capacity, more tolerance, more patience, more stamina, more endurance, more resilience in the mind to be able to open to all that's happening and to be at ease with it, to be at home with it, to be able to be intimate with it, knowing that it comes, it goes, it's okay. That's the path of the Buddha. That's the path of awakening. That's the path of living the Dhamma. And that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're training. Last night I spoke about opening the heart and training the mind. Now we're in the real training of the mind. Because we know we have these habitual reactions which are not Buddha-like. And they cause us a lot of suffering. They cause us to be unhappy and frustrated and disappointed and anxious, fretful and like I want to go home. But that's okay. That's, that's just the way it is. That's the conditioning. And the training of the mind is to not indulge in that, recognize it, not indulge in it, and develop strength of mind to, to, to endure it and to see that it doesn't really last that long. This is the path of awakening. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dhamma, supports our efforts to awaken. Third refuge is the Sangha. And the Sangha, as I mentioned last night, is the community. It's a community of practitioners. We here in this center create a Sangha. We're a community of of Dharma practitioners. And as Dharma practitioners, we are part of a larger Sangha, if you will, a worldwide Sangha. There are people all over the world doing today what you've been doing. Hundreds, thousands in Burma alone. There's hundreds of meditation centers in Burma where people are doing just what you're doing, sitting and walking in silence, watching that mind spin out. We're not alone. We're not doing this in some, or some, in some isolated place in the world where nobody knows about us. And it's not going to have any effect on anybody but just me. All of our efforts have result in our own heart. And to the extent that we wake up, or we begin to disentangle our own minds from suffering and the causes of suffering and unhappiness, we begin to understand the unfolding of our own life, we become better human beings. And we can live in greater harmony with ourselves, with each other. We can bring a, an understanding, a tolerance, 
a loving kindness to our relationships with friend and foe alike. The work we do here is valuable to every human being, every living being on the face of the earth. We're not, the work you're doing is not just for yourself. Yes, you have to endure your body. Yes, you have to endure your mind. But the work you do, to come to terms with it, to find an intimate, harmonious relationship with your mind and body, is work that you're doing for the whole world. The peace in the world that we all would love to see begins with this work, peace in your heart. Without peace in your heart, there'll never be peace in your own in your relationships, whether they're micro or macro. And so this this work that we're doing here is the very nuts and bolts intimate work of world peace. As as grandiose as that might sound, there's no other way. When we take refuge in the Sangha, we're taking refuge both in each other, just, you know, when you see somebody sitting and you're, you know, this is a good practice. When you find yourself sitting and you're in screaming utter agony and your body's killing you and your mind is rambling on and ranting and you're ready to bolt out of here, just open your eyes and look around and you'll see another 20 or 30, 40, 50 little Buddhas sitting there in radiant bliss or apparent radiant bliss. Uh, it, can, it can be really supportive of just, okay, let me just sit here with my stuff. They're all sitting there with their stuff. Great support. Taking refuge in each other is really valuable that way. But there's a larger Sangha that we're also taking refuge in that I want to mention. And I want to point to it by telling a story. I mentioned the meditation center where I went in Burma, that in the early morning we had a sitting, and then at 5.30 the gong would ring up, up the hill at the dining room, and then we would line up and go to breakfast. Well, each year in... December, the second weekend of December, there was held what was called, at this center, the Mahasi Festival. Mahasi is the name of the Burmese monk, Mahasi Sayadaw, who built this center. And he built it for lay people, not monks and nuns, but it was built for lay people because this monk had the idea that lay people, householders like yourself, could benefit from a short period of intensive practice, a week or two, a month or two, and that they could really realize for themselves the, te the teachings and the truth of the Buddha's teachings. Prior to that time, if you had wanted to hear these instructions that you're getting at this retreat, and if you had wanted the opportunity to practice like this, you would probably have to ordain as a monk or nun for life. That was prior to 1947. There were a few, you know, in, in Burma and Thailand, but not much, not generally available to householders. And here was a monk who said, householders can do this just as well as monks and nuns. And so, a center was built for him where he taught householders. And the understanding in Burma is 
householders who have, are busy raising their families and earning their livelihood and taking care of their the economy and the political situation of the, just doing their, doing the things that we do. If they undertake those householders' activities for 10 months a year, developing the paramis as much as they can, patience, understanding, loving-kindness, truthfulness, determination, energy. You do that for 10 months a year and developing those qualities in your household actions and then practice intensively for two months a year. Over the course of a lifetime, you will realize the teaching and the truth of the Buddha's teachings. You don't have to be a monk. You don't have to be a nun. It is available to us as householders if we take, you know, if we do the householder's practice and the intensive practice. Anyway, there was a festival the second weekend of December to celebrate this, this, this monk. He had died when I was there. He died in the late 80s, I guess. I know, the early 80s. And um, the, the elders of this lineage would come to Rangoon, to this kind of like the mother monastery, and to, to kind of have a three or four day celebration. And so the elder monks and nuns who teach in this tradition, there was about 400 of the monks and 100 of the nuns. stay at the monastery, and they would all bring their followers from all over Burma. And it was a pretty, it was a very uh, powerful festival. You've got the elders of this tradition, the 400, 500 monks and nuns that are the most accomplished in teaching of the monks and nuns in this tradition. And they're all around there, and they're having their meetings, and and there's constant Dharma talks broadcast over loudspeakers day from five in the morning until ten at night. Of course, I didn't understand a word of it, but it was it was all Burmese. But nevertheless, it was pretty high time. In the morning, when the gong would ring to call us to breakfast, monks, when they gather in any grouping, always do things in terms of seniority. Those who have been a monk the longest get to go first. And so when the gong would ring, calling us to breakfast, one of the junior monks who helped run that, this particular monastery would step out onto the pathway and he would say, 65 wasa. That means any monk who has been a monk for 65 years has done 65 three-month retreats, really. 65 wasa. Any monk who has 65 years can go to breakfast in one old slow-moving, walking with a cane or so, 
would kind of come out of the shadows and start up the hill. And he'd say, 64 wasa. And uh, maybe another one would come out of the shadows somewhere around the buildings and, and I'd get on the path and start up the hill. 63 wasa. And then he would keep going down the line like that. And these are the, the, the most elder that are still walking in this tradition. And they'd step out. And then when they'd get down to 30 wasa, that, that was a monk who was only 50 years old and he'd been a monk for 30 years because you can ordain when you're 20. And there'd be a dozen at a time. You know, they'd step out onto the path. And, you know, they'd get down to 10 wasa and there'd be a lot of monks. But they didn't let any Burmese monk with less than 10 wasa, 10 years, uh, come to this festival. They just didn't have room for him. But I was a Western monk and I only had one, I was only a monk for a year at that time. So they say, one wasa, and I could go. <laughs> so I step out into the path and, and I start walking up the hill and it's just, just becoming light. Monks can go to eat uh, when by the daylight you can see the lines on your hand. Okay. So if you're standing outside and you can't see the lines on your hand, the monks can't go for alms round. So there's just enough light to begin to be able to see a little bit. And uh, I'd step out onto the pathway and I'd be going off to breakfast. And I'd look up ahead of me and I'd see this long line of monks just kind of bobbing, bobbing along, going up the hill and around the corner and I knew they were going into the dining room. And I would look at that line and I would see at the head of that line is the Buddha. 2,500 years ago. Sat under the Bodhi tree, awoke to the truth, liberated his heart from suffering and the causes of suffering, and he turned to his fellow ascetics that he had practiced with and said, if you can see it this way, if you can see it this way, you'll be free. They heard that, they practiced, and they realized the truth of that. When there were 60 of such fully enlightened beings, the Buddha said, go teach, and don't any two of you go in the same direction. One of them taught, or all of them taught, whoever requested the teachings. Whoever heard it, practiced, realized, and also taught. And that is how the teachings of the Buddha have come to us 2,500 years later. Someone taught Mahasi Saira. See if you can see things this way. Mahasi practiced and he saw, this is the way. And then he taught Upandita. And Saira Upandita said, aha, uh -huh. he practiced, he realized, and he said, ah, this is the way. And then Upandita taught all of us. And we said, aha, uh -huh. this is the teachings, this is the practice, and to the extent that we have realized this is the way, we understand this is the way. He used to think that I was the last person in that line because there wasn't anybody behind me. But that's not true anymore because I'm going to ask you, see if you can see things this way. If you can see things through Dharma eyes, you too can be free. During this retreat, you have the opportunity to practice and to realize to the extent that you can the Dhamma. So when I take refuge in the Sangha, I'm not just taking refuge in us, I'm not just taking refuge in my teacher Upandita, 
But I'm taking refuge in that line of monks and nuns and laymen and laywomen that have supported them. It goes back to the Buddha. Because without them, we don't get the teachings. If we don't get the teachings, we don't get to practice, and we don't get to realize for ourselves the possibility of freedom. But not only do we look in that direction, but we have to look ahead. There are untold, unborn generations that are also going to suffer, that want to hear the teaching, and they want to practice, and they want to realize for themselves. When I take refuge in the Sangha, I'm also taking refuge in all of you to hear the teachings, to practice diligently with integrity, to realize to whatever degree you can, and then to make it available to others. It's the only way that any of us or anyone else is going to be free, and that peace in our heart is going to result in peace in the world. practice we do here is not insignificant. It's hard. I know it's hard. It's a struggle to be with your knee, with your back, with your restless mind. I know. I've been there. Still there. But it's noble work. It is so beneficial, not only to you, but to everyone here, everyone on the earth, and everyone yet to come. when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dhamma, we take refuge in the Sangha, it doesn't have to be just a meaningless mumbo-jumbo ritual. It can be a reawakening to this is what we're actually doing here. To re-inspire, to re-aspire, to, to recommit ourselves to this is what we're doing here. And there isn't any one of you in this room that can't Wake up. If you put your mind to it, if you're determined and energetic, nobody can stop you. Nobody can prevent you from being awake. Only your habits. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at our habits. So I encourage you to make the taking of the refuges each morning a recommitment to your aspiration and to inspire your efforts each day. Thank you. Listening to the Dhamma. Let's just sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Stonehouse, a 14th century hermit monk in China, wrote, You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rock wears through.
It's not true that thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine their minds are hard. You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. Now it's 8.30, and on the schedule it says there's a half-hour walking, and at 9 o'clock there's another sitting. For many of you, this is probably enough for today. But let me, let me try to inspire you to, to do a little walking and come back, because at 9 o'clock we're going to have a short sitting, not very long, and we're going to start teaching you the metta chant. Now, chanting in the evening is really good, especially chanting metta, because it puts your heart in a very loving space, it raises your energy so you can kind of practice a little more into the evening, and it feels good. But you've got to be here to get the benefit. So, I encourage you to you know, do a little walking, maybe go outside, get one breath of fresh, cool air, wake up the body and mind, and then come back. And Annie's going to be teaching us the metta, and it's going to be short-sitting. I promise. No more than... <laughs> no more than 20 minutes, okay? okay. So no more than 20 minutes. You heard her. Uh, you heard me. But she agreed. Okay? Okay. And uh, then we'll see you in the morning uh, after the chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.